This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm assistant editor here at Christianity Today. I'm joined as usual by Mark Alley. Hey Mark. Hey Morgan, how are you doing this morning? Really good, how are you? Okay, I wish the sun would come out. It's a little overcast today here. Agreed. And I'm feeling overcast. I'm hoping by the end of the podcast I'll be jazzed to tackle the day. You'll definitely be able to tackle that as we're in like an underground bunker with no natural light right now. Exactly, yeah. Who is joining us today? It's Martin Mana. He is the president of the Chaldean Chamber and Foundation in Detroit, Michigan. And if you're wondering what a Chaldean is or what who the Chaldeans are, they are one of the oldest Christian groups in existence and are indigenous to Iraq, Syria, and parts of Iran and Turkey. And we're going to learn more about them and some of the challenges they face in the United States these days. Martin, how's it going? It's great, beautiful, and sunny here in Detroit today. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Way to rub it in, buddy. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We're excited to talk with you today. So let's get into our topic at hand. The Iraqi Christian community caught a brief break last week when a federal judge temporarily banned immigration officials from moving ahead with their plans to deport around 300 people from the community. ICE agents had begun rounding up dozens of community members, some of them while they left church and taking them to detention centers in Ohio. Soon after the raids began, the community cried foul, pointing to the intense persecution that Christians have faced recently in Iraq thanks to ISIS. This is about the conditions we are sending people back to. We are imposing a death penalty through the back door, said the lawyer of one of those affected. While many members of the community have been in the United States for decades, Iraqis are now at risk of deportation, mostly the result of President Trump's travel ban. The administration's initial order included Iraq as one of the banned countries, but after the nation protested its inclusion on the list, it was removed from the subsequent order, or the revised order, with the compromise that the country once again accept deportees. This Tuesday, a federal judge issued a temporary ban on U.S. immigration authorities from deporting the nearly 1,500 Iraqis, Christian and Muslim alike, for the next couple weeks. In the meantime, the groups must prove to the government that their lives are at risk and make their case to the government that they should be allowed to stay in the U.S. The United States has officially recognized that Christians and other religious minorities are the victims of genocide in Iraq, yet the United States is reportedly in the process of deporting several individuals who come from these persecuted religious minority groups in Iraq, stated a letter of support of the Iraqi Christian community signed by a number of evangelical organizations, including the National Association of Evangelicals and the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Over the span of generations, the Christian community in Iraq has faced persecution from dictatorial regimes and violent extremists. The horrors facing Christians in Iraq are well documented, end quote. We've previously discussed Middle Eastern Christians on the show, most recently by learning more about Coptic Christians. Today, we'd like to learn more about the Iraqi Christian diaspora and the history of this tiny minority community in the United States. Before we get into all of that, I just want to remind everyone that this show is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today, which I remind you that you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. And if you subscribe now, you'll get our July, August issue, which is a double issue and full of really interesting articles, including one written by Mark himself. And Mark, I think you wrote it about the importance of leisure. 
Exactly. It's for the dog days of summer when I do a lot of golfing and fishing, and I was trying to justify my my activities. No, seriously, it's a uh, hopefully a somewhat playful rumination on the importance of rest. Not rest so that we can work more, but rest so that we can enjoy God more. So if you've ever listened to the end of the podcast during Precious Moments, Mark is talking about one of his trips, and you're like, whatever happened on those trips? Don't worry, guys. You can have it in written form. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's actually an important point, I think, that you're trying to make. Most of us rest so that we can just be more efficient in our work, not for the sake of it. God is the model here. He rested on the seventh day, and he didn't actually need to rest to get re-energized. He did it just because it was a glorious and quote-unquote godly thing to do. Sounds like an article that many people would like me to read. Maybe I will read it. (laughs) If you have time. (laughs) So again, if you would like to read Mark's article online or in print, you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, and you can get a subscription that way. So go ahead and do that and support the show. Let's go back to the discussion. And Mark, let's do a gut check. Let's go back to the news. You know, we at Christianity Day published a story about two or three weeks ago that announced that these Iraqis are going to be deported. Um, I just like to hear your gut reaction to that. Yeah, I was frankly shocked and surprised that one ramification of the uh, deportation policy was going to include these brothers and sisters in Christ as close as Detroit, uh, and it would affect their lives deeply. And I felt almost a sense of, what in the world can we do about that? I'm glad somebody had a better sense than I did that there was something to be done, someone to contact, somewhere to protest. The ACLU. But it was, uh, it was a little shocking because my, my wife works for World Relief in an agency that resettles people from overseas, and she's resettled many Iraqi Christians. And so it was a little more personal. Yeah, I, maybe this will come up later in the podcast, but a couple weeks ago, I wrote a story about Indonesian Christians who had lived in this country for about 20 years and were at that point at risk of being deported. They have since been deported back to Indonesia. And that was really striking to me that that had happened. They had had multiple type of like legal injunctions that had allowed them to stay for a longer time. But I guess in both of these instances, I feel like I'm like missing some information because these these are people that have been in the country for a long time. And so I'm like, how have they worked and what have they been doing here? And what's been the primary obstacle that's kept them from gaining permanent residence status? Right. Yeah. Because the stories come off as very shocking, but I don't understand many of the complexities, which is why I'm glad we're going to talk about some of this today. All right, Martin, you are our man. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) So clearly the entire Iraqi diaspora community isn't at risk of being deported. So help us understand why these specific Iraqis are eligible for deportation. Well, you you have to understand that um, we we have quite a large community. And when you talk about the Iraqi community in uh, in the United States, it's likely 80 to 85 percent of them are Christian. Uh, because at some point they've made their way to the United States because of persecution. These specific individuals that are at risk of deportation, and uh, ICE has said that, you know, Immigration Customs Enforcement has said there's as many as 1,400. Probably, uh, you know, half or so might be um, Iraqi Christian. So they came to this country legally, but there's a process to get citizenship. Once you arrive to this country, you're given usually a white card if you come as a refugee or seeking asylum or if you come for other reasons. After a year, you could apply for a green card and after five years, a citizenship. And the instances in which many of these individuals um, are facing deportation, at some point, you know, again, they came here legally, but either their families were lazy or they just didn't go through the citizenship process or they got in trouble within those first five years. If you have some sorts of misdemeanors, some misdemeanors or a felony, if you commit one and you're convicted of one, 
uh, without your citizenship, but you have no path to citizenship. You have, there's no legal path to citizenship in the United States. And for that reason, you are then put on final order of removal. So this is the situation most of these uh, individuals uh, are facing. They, at some point, and a lot of these crimes were committed in the 80s or 90s, um, they were put on final order of removal. They were never sent back to Iraq because of country conditions. So think about that for a second. Reagan, Clinton, two Bushes, Obama, never sent these uh, individuals back to Iraq because of country conditions, whether it was the Ba'ath Party or the first U.S. invasion or the second, uh, but conditions there wouldn't allow. And there are laws, um, international laws, country laws that, that talk about you cannot deport individuals back to a country in which um, knowingly they'll be put in harm's way or persecuted or there's a fear of persecution. One example of that, we even had prisoners at Guantanamo Bay that we wouldn't send back to Muslim countries because of the fact that we knew if they were sent back to those host countries, they would likely be killed or or persecuted. And so this is this is another example of, of you know people are arguing this. Okay, these guys are criminals because they are criminals. They should be deported. They shouldn't have any special consideration. However, they were criminals. They did their time. You know, many of them spent uh, years in jail, or some just had probation. Paid their debts to society. They do have to check in at least annually with ICE. It's not as if they didn't know where they are. So if any of these guys were ever acting up again since the 80s or 90s, they would have been detained. Most, almost all, have become model citizens, and now they're in this predicament because of the new executive order that was issued by President Trump. That's a helpful distinction because my, I was the question going around in my head was if they have committed felonies, why aren't they in jail? But to know that they've already paid the price of their, their crime, that's a very helpful uh, piece of information. Yeah, well, in any country mainly, but in the U.S., regardless if you're a citizen or not, if you, if you do a crime and, you, and you're convicted, you will have to, whatever the sentence is, you'll have to make sure that that sentence is, is fully taken care of before you could move on, you know, or, or be detained and deported. And so in this situation, there's also a Supreme Court that says either you have to deport or, or, or you have to free these, uh, individuals. So they can't detain them for longer than 90 days. So they've been mainly living in this country. And again, because they're on final order of removal, and again, some of them have been 30 years or more, they do uh, report to ICE. So ICE knows where they work. They do pay taxes. They have to have a work authorization card. They know who their family members are, what church they belong to, all of that information they have. So if at any point they're violating any uh, laws of this country, they could immediately be detained again. And so that hasn't been the case, again, with the vast majority of them who really have been have rehabilitated and have become, you know, their spouses, their children, they're all American citizens. So when you say they're on final order of removal, there's no way to get out of that status and become a citizen from there? There's no legal path unless it's a presidential pardon or if there is, uh, if it was a state felony, in some instances, they may be able to get a governor's pardon. Just to that point, uh, we have appealed to our governor here in the state of Michigan. Just to give you one example, uh, one man committed a crime in 1986. He spent six months in prison for an unregistered handgun. It was a road rage incident. He now has four children. They go to one of them goes to the University of Michigan. The others finishing up high school. Wonderful life. All American citizens hasn't had any issues with the law since 1986. And this was a surprise to his family that he was even picked up. He is one of the uh, main plaintiffs in the ACLU case, but. 
you know, it just gives you a sense of some of the people. Some haven't spent any jail time, uh, but again, because they're all on final order of removal, it gives ICE the ability to detain them and to uh, send them to Iraq. But Iraq was never willing to accept them because of country conditions. That changed under the second executive order in which Iraq was removed from the travel ban. Uh, and in response to that, they agreed to uh, take in Iraqi nationals. But there goes another challenge because many of these that are on final order removal from the Chaldean community are members that uh, came here when they were just children, adolescents. They don't speak the language, they're culturally illiterate, they don't have family members back in Iraq. And Iraq's having difficulties proving that they're even Iraqis because they left when they were so young. These were 300 people that were subject to arrest recently in Detroit. So how large is the overall Iraqi Christian community in, uh, I guess, both the Muslim and Christian community in Detroit? Yeah, so Metro Detroit's home to the largest um, Chaldean community, the Iraqi Christian community. It's about 150,000. There's probably an additional 25 to 30,000 uh, other Iraqis that are non-Christian that reside in Metro Detroit. So this is the biggest population in the United States. In the Chaldean community, um, most of them came in the late 1960s as the Ba'at party came into power. They chose Detroit like many other groups because of the opportunities in the automobile industry and also the proximity to Canada. You know, we border uh, Canada here and we have a, a population uh, right across the river in Windsor of, of Chaldeans and a church there as well. Um, but many weren't given or uh, able to get those jobs, but so many became entrepreneurs. And if you know the history, um, Islam forbids the sale and consumption of alcohol. So the Christians owned uh, much of the liquor stores throughout the Middle East. And here in Metro Detroit, many pulled their monies together and owned those types of businesses. So it went from 90% of the convenience stores here in Southeast Michigan to today, you have a community that contributes almost 11 billion annually to the economy, the state's economy. Uh, it's a community of entrepreneurs, more than 60% own at least one business. 40% uh, almost own two or more. And they dominate industries. You know, 75 out of 85 of the supermarkets in the city of Detroit are owned by Chaldeans. A majority of the hotels, whether it's a Holiday Inn Express, Hampton Inn, uh, are owned by members of the Chaldean community. Uh, and then they're also in, in other industries like the wireless, whether it's a T-Mobile, Sprint, uh, Metro PCS, they, they form occupational patterns like other immigrant communities. So it's a large community here and it, it's one that continues to grow and one that has a lot of uh, contributions to uh, this, this state as well. Those are amazing stats. So we can't accuse them of just living off the United States goodwill. It sounds like they're contributing quite a bit. If you look at, at our history, and unfortunately, it's been a history where there's been a lot of persecution. But given religious and economic freedom, the community uh, excels and it does does very well, whether it's here or in Australia or in Canada. You know, the diaspora community throughout the world is doing very well um, if they're in a safe environment and where they can worship freely. Um, they tend to do very well economically. Martin, you'd said that um, many Iraqi Christians began coming to the United States in the 1960s. Can you talk a little bit about what was going on in Iraq at that time that affected this population? Yeah, a lot of it had to do with the Ba'ath Party coming into power, mainly uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, as that Ba'ath Party came into power, many people were fearful of the new regime and tried to escape. You know, I'm the youngest of eight. I was born here in Detroit. But uh, five of my brothers and sisters were born in Baghdad. My dad was the uh, assistant editor of the daily paper. And as the Ba'ath Party came into power, the editor was taken away in fear that he was killed by the party. So my dad 
um, really it, it gathered as much as he could of, of our belongings and escaped through Iran and eventually to Lebanon and made his way here to uh, Metro Detroit. He spent most of his life talking about the human rights violations of Saddam Hussein and you know later would, would, was, would agonize about the removal of Saddam Hussein because of what's happened to the country post-2003. Yeah, I was under the impression that uh, the Christians were fairly well treated under Hussein. Well, he, as long as you bought into their ideology, it was a brutal dictatorship. Just like today in Syria, uh, the Christians are typically protected under these regimes because they're not really a threat to the regime. Why are they not seen as a threat? Because there's not enough of them and they're not going to be able to overthrow the government. Um, and they typically are looking for allies because they're a minority. It's not like a minority here in the United States where we all have and share our freedoms and have equal rights. That's unfortunately not the case in many of these Arab or Muslim countries. So I This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. wanted to talk a little bit about what the word Chaldean means and what it references. Can you give us a little bit of the history of that? Sure. And if you talk, you, you, you look at the Chaldean community or you look at the Christians of Iraq, you know, Chaldeans, Assyrian, Syriac, that's really uh, three different groups that uh, are all one and the same. We have three different names. But um, Iraqi Christians or the Chaldean community are indigenous to Iraq, parts of Iran, uh, all of Syria, and parts of Turkey. And they predate the Arabs, the Kurds. They have a history that goes back all the way to Mesopotamia, uh, which was known as the land between two rivers, the Tigris-Euphrates River, present-day Iraq. And the community, uh, as far as Chaldeans are, are Eastern Rite Catholics. So you mentioned you had talked to the Coptic community. When you talk about the Eastern Rite, it's the Lebanese Maronites, the Assyrian Church of the East, the Coptic Church, the Chaldean Catholic Church. So the Chaldean Catholic Church is, is the majority of the Christians uh, in, in Iraq. And we speak a dialect of, of Aramaic, the language spoken by Christ. And so uh, you, when you define the community, it's really defined by the language, the culture, the history, and our faith. And so we were converted in 45 AD by St. Thomas and, and have uh, had a presence in, in that part of the world for quite some time. So being Eastern Rite Catholics, you still, the Pope is the highest authority. And Pope is the highest authority, absolutely right. And so the Pope is our highest authority, but we have our own patriarch. He's known as the Patriarch of Babylon for the Chaldeans. He's in Baghdad. Uh, and then we have 17 bishops throughout the world. Nine are still in Iraq. We have two in Iran, one in Syria, one in Lebanon, one in Australia, one in Canada, two here in the United States. And so the church is run through the patriarch, but the highest authority is our pope. 
What has been the relationship of the Chaldean Church with the Evangelical Church, maybe even in Detroit? Is there any type of uh, ongoing conversation there? As, as you're, you had mentioned earlier, we were very thankful for the, the Evangelical community rallying in support of this issue more recently. You know, as, as a community here, p- part of what we've been trying to do is really help people gain an understanding of the, of the Iraqi Christian community. I think many people still don't even realize that there was Christians in Iraq and that they, they've been there for quite some time and that they predate the Arab community or Islam and many other things. So a lot of it is education. We've, we've been doing that. And, and, and so as a, as a community, we're, we're, Getting much better organized, and uh, as we acculturate here in America, you know, some of those efforts will uh, take shape. What do you find in your education process that most people don't understand about the Iraqi Christian community? Well, a couple things. They have a difficulty understanding that you know we're not Arabs. We we have um, our own language and our own culture and our own history. So you know that's that's part of it. And the the other part is 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 we get a lot of questions about what's life like um, as a Christian uh, in the Middle East. So and you know this since 2003 the U.S. invaded Iraq we had 1.5 million Christians there. Today it's fewer than 200,000. We have 340 churches in Iraq, less than 40 remain today. Many of our community members that are still in Iraq are internally displaced people living in refugee camps. In 2014, ISIS took over the remaining Christian villages in and around Mosul, labeled all of our homes and businesses with the Arabic letter N, talking about that these are Christians, that they're now property of the Islamic State. Our people were given 24 hours to either convert or be killed or flee, and thank God they had that time. Most of them were able to get out, uh, but things have not been easy for the community historically. You even go back to what, what many people refer to as the Armenian Genocide in the early 1900s. 300,000 members of our community were, were killed at that point because of their beliefs in Christianity. So this has been an ongoing persecution uh, because of our faith, and about 80 of our churches have been bombed. ISIS has desecrated most of them. We've been trying to preserve many of the uh, our original manuscripts that go back to the first century, including our Bibles and many other church teachings. So uh, living in Iraq has been quite a challenge, but uh, these people have a strong faith and a will uh, like no other. You were talking about the different rites. Could you explain a couple of those to us? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the, the Eastern Rite, you know, the Chaldean community, we belong to the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church which means we have a right that is united with Rome, but we use our, we use our own Aramaic liturgy and language. So again, uh, the Chaldean Catholic Church, and there's about 12 of them here in Metro Detroit, it's really the same mass as the Roman Catholic Church. The difference is uh, the prayers are done in our native language in Aramaic. Um, the only other difference is when you're baptized in the Chaldean Church, you're also confirmed. We have a patriarch who um, is united with the Church of Rome, but the patriarch oversees our church and our bishops. But again, the Pope is the highest authority. So I'm just curious here. I know that Michigan is also home to a fairly large Arab and Muslim population here. What is the Iraqi Christian relationship been with that population been here like? Good question. We we um we have a lot of uh, joint events together. The Iraqi council, the, the Iraqi community here has a consulate. Um, the consulate has been really a great advocate for our community. So there's ongoing dialogue, but there's also some challenges. 
I, I run the Chaldean Community Foundation, which is in Macomb County. And since 2007, we've had about 30,000 Chaldean Iraqi refugees make their way to Michigan. And so we provide services to, to anyone that walks through our door, including English learning, citizenship applications. We probably file on more than 3,000 applications a year. We have uh, many other uh, programs, career services, access to health care. We have a program for those with developmental disabilities. I'm giving you that background so you know that you know in Macomb County, it's really been quite an explosion of growth in as far as new refugees that have come to that area. And they're also contributing immensely to the economies there. And Macomb County, if you remember, was a key factor in getting President Trump elected. We've had quite a significant increase in population in that county. Going back to why I'm bringing that up is um, while we've had a very positive and uh, long-lasting relationship here in the United States with the Arab Muslim community, doesn't mean that we don't have challenges. There was um, an effort to build a new mosque right down the street from our center, which is a heavily populated Chaldean area, mainly with new refugees. Um, and they didn't really respond well to it. There was protests around the mosque and people were claiming that the community, you know, had a racist tone to it and that Chaldeans were not tolerant of Muslims. And so we had to step in and just help people explain that there's a lot of deep wounds that need to be healed, that many of these newcomers, um, whenever a new mosque was being built in their villages in Iraq, it meant displacement, hatred, ongoing persecution. And so we've had a lot of dialogue uh, with, with the community about those issues to try to make sure that people are aware of the sensitivities that exist with our community. And we're also helping our newcomers understand that America provides freedom of religion to all and that we have to be accepting of everyone. And although things did happen to us back in Iraq, um, you know, we, we have to discuss those things to make sure that uh, we don't become the aggressors here in the United States. Yeah, I'm glad that you're discussing that because my understanding was that many in this Iraqi Christian community did vote for Trump in this election. And it did lead me to wonder kind of like what the political priorities of this community often are. It's a very conservative community. It's always faith first and family. But, you know, you talk about our community and whether they lean are they conservative or are they more liberal? And it's tough, it's tough because you, you look at the Republicans, for example, and while they appreciate our Christian beliefs and they'll fight for us when we talk about the persecution of Christians. Um, when we start talking to them about immigration issues, they seem to shut down. On the other side, when you talk to Democrats, they, they want to rally around issues that, um, you know, we talk about social justice issues and immigration reform. But when we talk about the persecution of Christians, it goes to a, you know, a deaf ear. And so those are our challenges. Now, our community was very upset with George Bush because of the fact that he invaded Iraq and they really didn't put a plan together to protect the minorities. And you've seen what's happened to our community there. And then they were even more so upset with uh, President Barack Obama because of the fact that he wouldn't really step in and take seriously the issue of ISIS and the persecution of Christians and other minorities. You know, and frankly, in speaking to that administration, it was often very difficult for us to even bring up issues relating to Christians and persecution and to a point where this wasn't a priority for the previous administration. So President Trump throughout his campaign talked about prioritizing Christian refugees. That was another issue. We knew that there was a gross injustice being committed. There was barriers to entry for many Christians because of the process. When we raised those issues with the previous administration, we really didn't get much positive response. 
That is the reason I think you'll see that because of the conservative nature of the community, our church got very involved in making sure that people voted for someone who would be protective of our values and more importantly uh, of uh, those that are being persecuted. And here's the irony. Uh, you had a president who, who came, even met with some of our priests, talked about prioritizing Christians from Iraq and Syria. And the first raids that are being done here by ICE on a, a national level impact Iraqi Christians more than anybody else. Yeah, that was the thing I think on the gut check I didn't mention was uh, that was the ironic thing is that here is a person who is, we as you know Christianity are thankful that he's taking seriously the persecution of Christians overseas. I don't know if he didn't know what the consequence of this order would amount to or what was going on, but it was quite a shocker in that regard. Agreed. And, you know, our story brings up the fact that there was a giant Christian persecution summit organized a couple weeks ago in D.C., and Mike Pence actually attended that and spoke specifically about the issues, you know, facing Christians that were in Iraq. So I guess it's kind of almost doubly ironic in that way. Yeah, he's been um, really outspoken and in support of of our community. I mean, we couldn't ask for anything really better coming from the vice president. And just two weeks ago or three weeks ago, the vice president hosted the Chaldean Catholic Patriarch from Baghdad and the Syriac Catholic Patriarch from Syria and the Syriac uh, Patriarch, uh, Orthodox Patriarch. So it goes back to the church, you know, Chaldean, Syriac, really the same community. Syriac is the language, but um, in Syria, they're mainly re- referred to as Syriac, in, in Iraq, mainly uh, Chaldean. And all three of them met with the vice president to talk about a plan forward to preserve Christianity in the Middle East. I'm really interested in just the history of the Iraqi Christian community in terms of Arab converts, did that happen? Was there ever any type of like outreach to the larger Muslim population in terms of trying to bring them into the church as well? Well, uh, it's it's a dangerous thing in, in, for us in, in Iraq. You know, even start talking about those things, um, it puts our church at risk. And the ones that remain there, most of the churches are under heavy guard, and it's not something that, you know, can happen. But I will tell you, you know, quietly, many are coming to the faith um, and and are seeing the light and are are joining um, Christianity. Um, And it's not something that we're out there promoting, but it is happening. Yeah, so given these challenges... Especially here in the U.S., what what in your view can American evangelical Christians do to support Iraqi Christians right now? Well, a lot of this really comes down to the administration. We are fighting in the course to try to provide some a stay of removal, but there has been precedents where other communities weren't deported back to their host country because of country conditions. And what we're we're asking or what we're seeking is a temporary uh, stay of removal until country conditions improve. And they may never improve. That's that's the, the, the issue we're dealing with. And this is not like sending Canadians back to Canada. We really have no homeland. I mean, you know, it would be like sending Jews back to Nazi Germany. You have no homeland really for the Christian community in Iraq anymore because of the persecution and the genocide. We as a country just uh, last year, declared that um, a genocide has been committed against Christians and other minorities in Iraq. How could we consciously uh, send back Christians to that country? We want this country to follow all laws. And part of those laws are, you know, we we don't have laws that are cruel and unjust. We also, uh, it would be inhumane 
You know, and the other part is there is convention against torture. You can't send people back to a country in which normally they'll be put in harm's way or persecuted. And almost all of these people don't have family back there. They're culturally illiterate. So what can people do? We just, you know, we, we appreciate all the prayers that people can provide for the community. Um, and we also are hopeful that, um, like a letter that was written on behalf of many evangelical organizations, that they could get involved with their congressional representatives, their senators, and mainly the administration in telling them that they too are in agreement that we shouldn't send Christians back to Iraq because of the persecution that they may endure. Is immigration reform something else that you would ask people to advocate for? We look at immigration this way. This country has always prioritized people who are being persecuted throughout the world. Under the previous administration, that wasn't the case. And so we've been making our case that um, the Christians of the Middle East should be prioritized. They're not a threat to national security. And frankly, they, they become great uh, contributors here in, in the United States. So when we look at reform, there have been some bills that have been presented in which we're saying that um, the minorities of the Middle East really should be prioritized. And, you know, you can't use the word Christian because that won't work in courts, but we can use ethnic and religious minorities. They've done it for other groups. And under the previous administration, you look at people from Congo, Somalia, uh, Sudan, many other countries in which they were prioritized, all of which were Muslim. So they should also do the same for uh, the Chaldean, Assyrian, Syriac community, the Yazidi communities from the Middle East who are facing uh, ongoing persecution. Yeah, I'm glad that you're bringing that up because definitely at the beginning when the travel ban was first announced, I heard pushback from all different sides about the idea of prioritizing one group of people over the rest, especially given that ISIS has kind of gone after a wide variety of groups. Yeah, but we as a country have always done that. I don't think people know or realize, you know, the history. Um, And that was one of the memos we issued to the State Department and also to several members of Congress and the previous administration, that we have prioritized people coming from countries in which there is persecution. And again, almost all those instances, the the people that have been prioritized are Muslim. And we should. I mean, they shouldn't face any persecution like any other group. But we can't close our eyes when it's Christians. I mean, Christians uh, throughout the world are um, more persecuted than any other group now. And uh, we can't close our eyes or have deaf ears to the fact just because they're Christians. I mean, I don't know why, you know, in, either in the previous administration or even in, through through the halls of Congress, that we can't talk about the persecutions of our brothers and sisters who are Christians throughout the world. Absolutely, we should do everything we can to help them. I mean, that's what we're here to do. We're here to serve and protect, especially people of our faith, and we have to do everything we can to help them. All right. Thank you so much for this really great discussion, Martin. This was super informative. I learned a lot of things. Yeah, me too. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So just a reminder to all our listeners, if you have thoughts or questions or feedback, you can give that on social media. We are on Twitter at CT Podcast, and we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcast. All right. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something with our listeners that is bringing them joy or making them happy this week. Martin, are you ready to go? I'm ready. All right. Let's hear it from you. Well, I have um, a beautiful wife and four wonderful children. My uh, my son had a minor medical emergency that we we're very concerned about. And I just want to thank God and all the people that have been praying for him. His medication has been working and it seems like he's on the right path. And just very, very thankful for that. How old is he? He is 14. 
Oh, that's yeah, a- I just turned 15. I'm sorry. Well, yeah. yeah, come on, Dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Well, that's a relief. I'm glad to hear that. And where can people find you online? Uh, Chaldean Foundation. That's C-H-A-L-D-E-A-N foundation.org. And then we also are on Facebook um, and Instagram. And, and I'm under Martin F. Manna. I was just curious, do you have any books that you would recommend for people who want to know more about Iraqi Christians? Yeah, you know, I'll post those on the website. There's several. And uh, what we'll do is we'll list them on the website if people want to learn more about the community. And our website also has a lot of uh, general information about the history of the community and organizations that are working uh, in support of the community. Awesome. Mark? Well, we uh, celebrated uh, my son-in-law's birthday over the weekend, so it was nice to go bowling for the first time in years. And Did you do bumper bowling? I didn't do bumper bowling. Maybe I should have because the last <laughs> the last game, my wife beat me, which is pretty unusual. So, so it was just a good time with family. Cool. Where can people find you? They can find me by subscribing to the Galley Report. Uh, that is spelled with G-A-L-L-I report at ChristianityToday.com. I send out a, a set of links and commentary on those links every week. You know, and apparently, guys it's probably going to get you to subscribe to the magazine if this podcast is not. Because yesterday we learned that Mark's newsletter does the best job of convincing people to subscribe to the magazine out of any of our newsletters. And I never actually tell them to do that. So you won't be, you won't be hammered. If you, <laughs> you get, you'll just be so thankful for the good content. I'm hoping that you'll want to subscribe to CT. All right. So my precious moment has not happened yet, but I am road tripping with my family in Texas this weekend. It is really going to be a lot of driving and not a lot of time. We're flying into Houston. I'm going to a baseball game there. Going to NASA in Houston. Then we're going to San Antonio on Saturday, Austin on Sunday, Dallas on Monday, and then I'll fly back on the 4th. Wow. I know. You'll be exhausted. Okay, well, I'll let you know. I may be hosting this by myself next week. (laughs) All right. Well, that is it for us this week. This podcast is produced by Cray Allred and Richard Clark. It is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. But Apple Podcasts is the place to go if you could leave us a review, which is one of the best ways that you show us that you support the show and that you like it. So thank you to everyone who has done that already. And we will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.